What is crack a lack and fellow thermonuclear efforts? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Man Hughes, but I do have part two of that mailbag that I promised you. Before we get started, the quick reminder: just two things. Subscribe to us if you haven't already, and if you have on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and left a review as well. Tell people about us, recommend us, shout us out on Twitter, retweet our promos, help us grow the community in any way that you possibly can. Join our Discord, the link to that is in the podcast and YouTube description. You can follow us on all the socials, those are in the YouTube and podcast descriptions as well. But without further ado, let's just let's just cannonball right in. For anyone watching on YouTube and sensing hesitance, it's because I am trying to time stamp this to make your life easier um, to hop around if need be. And so, yeah, just if you see me just stretching with my arms or my eyes are wandering, that is that is officially why. So our first question comes from Samuel. Anthony Edwards' highest season average points per game will be what? It's a fascinating question. Uh, it's weird because – so let's look at where he's right now. He's at 24.6 points, uh, 4.6 points per game this season. And I think – the first question we ask ourselves, will he ever get to 30 and to be at 25 ish in year three? And he's been like pretty clearly over that. I think for some time, at least since they've turned the keys of the offense over to him, it might be reasonable to expect him to get there. His three point volume has been pretty steady this year. Uh, probably needs to get at the free throw line more. If you don't see him taking more than seven attempts or so per game from long distance, I, I think he'll get to 30 just based on the progression of the NBA and how the rules favor offenses so much. And even just someone who in year three is taking seven plus attempts from deep per game, you're probably going to expect that number to maybe come up at some point. Is that going to be more, does he cut out some of his mid range volume or is it just, again, I think a matter there's room for him to really get to the foul line more, especially when you look at someone who's as quick with this first step and just overall as physical uh, as he is. Uh, if I had to put a number on it, it what makes this weird is that there have been 83 seasons, including this year, in which a player has averaged at least 30 points per game. I actually thought that was pretty low, but uh, I, was, I was surprised the number wasn't higher. And so there would be an element of that is still kind of rare. And it's worth a point, though, where 20 points per game just happens so often. It's still, look, it's impressive if you get there, especially as a non-star. But I do think it's uh, something that needs to factor in that if – if 30 points is still fairly uncommon, do we just expect him to get that high? It wasn't just, you know, we're only seeing the 20 points per game threshold be hit so easily now. And uh, how much further can the NBA skew in the direction of higher volume offense? Is the pace really going to increase from here? Is the three-point volume really going to increase from here? So I still think he's someone who's capable of having a season in which he gets a 30, but I think he will top out probably... 29 30 if he has a season where he's at like 32 or something i do think i mean good for him maybe he's gone full jimmy butler with his excursions to the foul line but i I think it might more so represent a material change in how the offense is played but i mean like he's he's already there and so to put a limit on that and say he definitely won't hit 30 we're talking about five extra points per game essentially which can come again at the foul line so do i think i get there i'm just going to say yes just given the given how given how good he already is given the room to, I think get to the foul line more. And then just knowing that, okay, we've seen player three point volumes tick up over the years, or maybe just something happens to where he, he becomes super more efficient. I think there's even room for, you know, you look at his three point shooting. He could probably stand to bring that up a few percentage points and that's going to add to, to more baskets. And yeah. So when you're this young and you're at about 25 points per game, I would say that you can get uh, to 30. If I had to put a direct number on it and I know I already said it'll be 29 or 30, let's say his career high, Points per game 
Sam Samuel. This is what you're looking for, that exact number. Based off just how he plays, the room for growth, I'm going to say 31.3. Let's go a lot. I think he's going to get there for an entire season. I feel I'll probably wind up being wrong. So, uh, but th- there's the number that you wanted. Uh, next question comes from Cake Boy. He asks, are the New York Knicks actually good? I'm answering this question on the heels of them losing to the Charlotte Hornets. They did not have Jalen Brunson. The Charlotte Hornets did not have Lamelo Ball. Uh, it just looked like a team that was gassed, though. I, I saw most of that game. They've had some pretty epic wins over the past you know, week or so, and Manuel quickly playing 55 minutes against the Celtics. Julius Randle's been carrying a, a huge load for a while. Is this team actually good? The answer to me is just it's – it's yes. Uh, since you can break down your season as they want, but I've been using January 1st, they are fifth in net rating. They are fourth in offense. And so a lot of people have decided like their offensive growth, uh, you know, during the Josh Hart era after the, after the trade deadline. But the fact of the matter is that they've been really good on offense for, for quite some time. Uh, like I said, fourth in offensive rating, they don't turn the ball over. They're really good at offensive rebounding. Mitchell Robinson helps them there. Hart and Stein can help them there as well. They get to the foul line at a decent clip. I think it helps most that, you know, Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson have played like borderline all NBA players during this stretch. Something that I don't think is receiving enough credit and Josh Hart has nothing to do with this. It also predates him. We've talked a lot about how they need to take more threes. Uh, They are 10th in three point attempt rate and ninth when it comes to above the break threes. And so you're having that volume come up. They are third in the, uh, I'm sorry, this is, I'm actually looking at their, the wrong numbers again because it's late, but I actually think they are 10th at three-point attempt rate over the span. They're ninth in three-point attempt rate, excuse me. So they're a team that's taking enough threes. Are they making enough during this stretch? Like 37.3% is fine. It's 15th in the league during that span. But again, to have Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson playing as well as they are, uh, looking at Emmanuel quickly, since January 1st, he's shooting 56.8% on floaters and over 40% from three can still get, you know, the step back. He takes them, um, not going down at the highest of clips, but just the pressure he can put on defense with the ball in his hands. Couple that with his, um, the defensive value that he brings. I know a lot of people have questioned whether he could be targeted in the playoffs. I guess maybe we've seen some teams go at him, especially with their bigger wings, uh, but this is a very feisty point of attack defender. And he's not like the smallest of players. This is not someone who's like six foot going on five, Five ten, and so I imagine he will hold up fairly well, especially in the context of a larger system with uh, Josh Hart and even RJ Barrett at points. And if Mitchell Robinson is going to be on the floor behind him, it's going to give him some leeway uh, there too. So the Knicks have also during this span they've had the the best point differential in the league uh, from their bench reserves, and that's going to be huge. It's a huge part of their depth. You took Cam Reddish and uh, Derek Rose and Evan Fournier out of the rotation largely, and so you replace those minutes with. Quentin Grimes, Deuce McBride was in there for a little bit before Josh Hart came along. Isaiah Hartenstein, who's been rebounding the ball defense at the defense at the defensive end, excuse me, a lot better. And so you kind of look at their top eight, top nine guys. I mean, you, Julius Randle, Mitchell Robinson, uh, Quentin Grimes, R.J. Barrett, Jalen Brunson, and then having IQ Josh Hart and Isaiah Hartenstein. It's like those eight guys um, that gives you real weaponry. How far can they go in the playoffs? I do worry about their defense. It's been better. 10th in points allowed per possession since Josh Hart has been there. A lot of that ground is being made up by um, their bench. I mean, like you, the the units with Emmanuel quickly and Josh Hart together, just absolutely slaughtering people at the moment. Uh, they've gotten a little bit lucky on opponent three-point shooting, though, during this span, and they do allow opponents to take a, a ton of threes overall. And that's just part of, you know, sort of the Tibbs model. But 
You look at all of the jump shots, basically, that they're allowing. And outside of 10 feet, 48% roughly of their opponent looks are considered open or wide open. So with a defender more than four feet away from them, that's a pretty high number. It would rank, I think, in the like one of the five highest marks in the league when it comes to that. Um, if you're going to give teams those looks, they will hit them. And you can argue that they've gotten a little bit lucky on opponent wide open three-point shooting this year. Opponents are only shooting, I think, like 37.3% on wide open threes against the Knicks. So that's something they kind of need to tamp down, but it's also inherent of their defense. I do think you've seen improvement from Julius Randle at that end. I've seen a little bit more uh, flashes from RJ Barrett on that side of the floor. I think Emmanuel quickly and Josh Hart are hellfire on that end of, um, of the court as well. And so my roundabout answer here is yes, I think that uh, the Knicks are good. I think that they are capable of winning a playoff series, assuming that they don't play, we know they're not going to play Boston or Milwaukee at this point. So that's fine. If they went against Philly, I would really dig deep into it. I feel like I might still pick Philly. It gets really interesting when you're starting to look at the Cavs. Uh, if you're starting to look at, do they wind up facing the Nets? If they face anyone else, I would definitely pick. If they face anyone other than the Cavaliers or the Sixers, I'm going to pick the Knicks. But this is a team that I think is absolutely capable as long as they don't play Miami, uh, excuse me, Milwaukee they could make the Eastern conference finals. I just, I don't see a pathway to them beating um, Milwaukee, to be honest. They just don't have an answer for Giannis when you look at that. I mean, who does, but them specifically, you don't have a great answer um, for how to defend Giannis. And especially during, yeah, there could be points where maybe the Bucks downsize and Giannis is at center, but it, playing him with Brooke Lopez, Bobby Portis makes your life a lot more difficult because of their ability to stretch the floor. So if they don't, play Milwaukee, they have a path to the Eastern conference finals in my mind. I don't know if that's like, you know, damning with faint praise a little bit, but to, when you consider where they were um, around the start of December or, you know, even just 10 or so games into the season where everyone was wondering when is Tibbs going to get fired? It was you just this matter of, like I said, when not if uh, I think that's just, uh, you know, I think it's incredible that that type of turnaround that they're having. Um, next question comes from mogul seeker and it was something that i it's covering something that i guess i need to wade into and i'll use it to launch into a different discussion but they ask why does nicole Jokic continue to be overlooked by pundits despite completely crushing all analytics metrics my argument would be that i don't think Jokic is being overlooked when you go back to tim bontemps's second mvp straw poll Jokic was overwhelmingly predicted to win his third straight mvp and I think people have been very quick to recognize the value that he brings on offense. And when we're looking at, I'll answer this part of the question first, but I would like to launch into a larger discussion about the MVP discourse we've seen. I do think there are aspects of his performance that can go unnoticed where, yes, we talk a lot about the triple doubles. Um, but, you know, can we talk about how he leads the league in true shooting percentage? There's 118 players who qualify for the field goal percentage leaderboard this year per stat head. He leads everyone in true shooting. Like he just leads the league in true shooting percentage. This isn't someone who's only shooting gimmies at the rim. Like this is someone who is taking like really tough fallaways and floaters and has taken some threes. That is wild. He also owns the NBA's best crunch time plus minus. You start to break it down to even higher stakes moments. We know traditional M uh, crunch time is the final five minutes in which no team is ahead or behind by five points. Um, if you start to go to the final two minutes of one possession games, only Harrison Barnes as a better uh, plus minus in, in those situations. If you go to the final minute of one possession games, Jokic then takes the lead again. And Denver is 16 and five in those situations, which is the best winning percentage in the NBA. 
that's not attributed to one player. There can be a lot of noise during the clutch, and we've seen it. The Nuggets have the league's best defense in the clutch. Opponents are shooting very poor percentage from three and haven't really done a good job at the foul line either. That's not something that you can just bank on defending well. Still, um, it just feels like there, there are still underrated aspects of his performance and maybe even the way that the Nuggets are faring. They're seventh in points allowed per possession um, since December 1st. And there's, again, a lucky opponent three-point shooting to me caked into there. And I do think this is not all Nuggets fans. And I want to make this clear that I don't, I'm not intending like any – I'm not even about to say with all due respect and then completely shit over everybody. I do think there is a, a subset of Nuggets fans that just are so defensive when it comes to discussions about Jokic's flaws – questions about how the defense will hold up in the playoffs. And like, you can watch Jokic. He, he can be a smart defender. He knows where to be great hands in space. Um, you know, if you're going to play him in the drop or just sort of play him in um, the middle of the floor, like he's going to know how to break up plays if the opportunity comes, but he's also like slow and gets burned on rotations to the basket. And we've seen teams exploit that. He knows where he has to go on rotations and he's headed to the right spot, but he doesn't get there quick enough. And like, that's an actual flaw. It's why the Nuggets, are one of the league's worst teams at protecting the rim. Uh, no one on the Nuggets, by the way, this isn't just a Jokic thing, by the way. No one on the Nuggets is allowing um, less than 60% shooting at the rim this year. And so, like, that's actually pretty wild. I didn't go through every team and see who, like, if there were any other teams in the same situation. But, like, that's that's damning with, with zero praise. Forget damning with faint praise. And so, like, these are questions that are going to have to be answered in the playoffs. What happens if you go up against people when uh, that are going to be able to really target him in the pick and roll, or is it, you know, I go back and forth with the Suns, where it's like, look at the spots that Devin Booker, Kevin Durant and Chris Paul want to get to. Are the Nuggets more vulnerable there? Or are they in sort of in the lead there? Because where they're going to play Jokic, like he's in a position to either contest those shots, or you just know that he's not going to get beat um, by guys cutting towards the basket or even guys necessarily going towards the basket. I would say the answer play lies somewhere in between and Devin Booker, especially whether he's on the ball or off the ball can play at every level. It's not just sort of this perimeter based game, but like those are questions I'm thinking about and we can have fair discussions about them. I did want to touch upon this whole Jokic about to win his third straight MVP. We saw, I'm sorry, everyone saw the clip of JJ Redick with the exchange um, to Kendrick Perkins about how JJ Redick saying that Kendrick Perkins was accusing voters of being racist because they were going to, uh, select Jokic to win MVP for a third straight time. There has been a lot of different discussions being had um, just spinning off that conversation and the exchange that we saw JJ Redick and Kendrick Perkins have on Twitter. I I'm definitely exhausted by it. And I think there's a problem to me with the MVP discourse in the sense that we're always looking to chop others down and speak in absolutes where we're saying Jokic is running away with this award. Now I do an MVP ladder of Bleacher Report basically every other week. I took some time off uh, recently, but it's back up and running. Jokic would be my MVP if the season won today. But each and every season, I feel like there's always two, three, sometimes even four candidates that you could vote for, make a strong case for, and there shouldn't be any wholesale qualms with the pick. I think this is one of those seasons, again, sort of like last season. If you pick Embiid I, and you build the case, like, yeah, I'm going to listen to it, and I'm probably going to be like, hey, Embiid's number two for me right now it's the same with Giannis whose case I think is underrated but that's a different story um and then there's I think you could even make a pretty strong case for Luca at this point uh however I think for and especially for white media members like we do need to take a step back where if we're going to profit off of black culture and the sport that is um really headlined by so many talented black athletes if we're going to see 
those same athletes or analysts or fans genuinely question, not disingenuous. And I would argue the problem with the way that Kendrick Perkins framed it to me is he's looking at just points per game. And that was just like, there's discussions to be had. That wasn't the way to go about it. In my opinion, hopefully that comes across as humble or respectful, or at least not asinine. And we have to accept and look back and say, okay, well, like, could there be bias creeping in? And you go back and look, and it's just like, Jokic is about to win a third MVP award. And it's weird that we can't say that ever happened for Michael Jordan or LeBron James, who were the best players to the best, these two best players of all time. And there had to be a span in the NBA where they probably could have won like five runoff five in a row. And then LeBron, we can get into the 2011 debate. He absolutely should have won that to me. Um, I even would have gone with Dwight Howard over Derek, but that's besides the point. And that is not a criticism of Jokic, but it is something to look within and kind of wonder, okay, like, are we just evaluating the game differently now? And the term voter fatigue gets thrown around a ton. Someone had pointed out on Twitter that there were very prominent media members who I respect that also said they couldn't vote for Giannis to win his third MVP a couple of years ago because of his lack of success in the playoffs, even though that's a regular season award. And even though that's the defense that so many of us, including myself, have used for Jokic to win his third MVP award. I do also think there's a disconnect with how Jokic has fared in the playoffs. Individually, he has been really good. You look at the last time the Nuggets were healthy, say what you want about the bubble. They went to the Western Conference Finals. And so, yes, they did not make it out of the West. But then the past two seasons after that, you don't have Jamal Murray. They're banged up beyond reason last year. And so I don't think it's disingenuous to say, well, we can't just say that Jokic hasn't had playoff success and maybe we were just too hard on Giannis there, but we saw him individually struggle with how defenses were going at him. And then he made changes to his game to have all these counters. And maybe he should have gotten more credit because that's when he really started to develop those counters was during that, you know, the Bucks championship run. Maybe he should have gotten more credit um, for doing that. Then I think that we have to be open to saying that, okay, we missed the mark there. It's also been pointed out that Jokic is where he is largely because of how he dominates the analytical debate. And so many of the the voters, you know, they're white and they place, I guess, I don't want to say more emphasis. It's that there's an emphasis on analytics and that a lot of it, this is other people on Twitter have had threads about this is not an original thought. They are going to lean on analytical models more. And that's going to inherently benefit Jokic in the sense that these analytical models regardless of whether you know it goes into them or not like they really do favor offensive output and rebounding and then they really struggle to quantify defensive value on an individual level um i don't know anyone who actually i don't say who actually matters but like the best of the best even if you disagree with them are not just looking at analytical models they're trying to weigh everything and i think that that includes not just the eye test but trying to contextualize narratives or storylines, or anecdotal evidence. And I think we sometimes veer too much into these debates where we make it all about the storylines, where it's, oh, well, Jokic, look at him carrying the Nuggets to the sixth seed, and he didn't really have anyone. Yeah, that's a form of an argument, but it's not the only one. That does bring me to another problem with all this, and I don't know if it's a problem, but the MVP award is just so open to interpretation. And that's either a good thing or it creates this toxic ambiguity because everyone's going to place different ascribe different meanings to the word value and that could be best player on the best team to some should just get the award or some are just going to default to well this is the one um, player a team can't live without it's going to default to others well who has the best sort of on off swings even though there's a lot of context that gets lost there because let's use the nuggets as an example the way they play the their bench first of all is built to favor having 
very poor performances without Jokic on the court. They've gone through stretches where they've looked better, but overall, like their bench is not built to be strong without him. And then you kind of look at the way they're going to stagger or not stagger some of the minutes of their best players, aka Jamal Murray. That's going to favor the on-off swings more. And it's important to contextualize that. I still cite the on-off net rating swing, and everyone knows that because it's also kind of mind-boggling that he's having that impact on what is the second best team in the league right now by record and by far the best team in the Western conference that matters. It makes him a legitimate candidate, a legitimate pick and not someone when you go back and look at his past three individual seasons, we shouldn't have this revisionist history a decade from now and say, well, how did he win three MVP awards? Um, It should be, we should be able to ask the question instead of like, well, why didn't like what was happening with the process years ago? Um, that this couldn't have happened for LeBron James. This couldn't have happened for Michael Jordan. And those two guys specifically, I'm just plucking out because they very easily, I feel like during their heydays, they could have just won every single season. And like, yeah, there were deserving alternatives. Let's use LeBron's example. Like there were seasons where Steph Curry looked like he was the best player in basketball. That's yet another complicated layer to this discussion. Jokic is widely, some call him the most valuable, the best player in basketball. But during these seasons, we've always kind of just evolved to like, that's still Giannis. And so it's weird to have, okay, well, he's this three-time MVP, but he has never been the best player in basketball during those seasons. We can go back and relitigate. We can even say, like, there's a difference between value and best. That's what makes this debate so hard to reach anything resembling a consensus. And I also kind of think that's the point. But I also, while the debates can get toxic, and I don't really like chopping other players down, within it and the the endless propaganda from teams and executives and from trainers where they're also sometimes um shower made nameless or just going to try and drag someone else down at the expense of another player yeah it, it gets exhausting and i don't want to have that type of mvp discussion but i also think we all need to be open that we're not like we're just inherently flawed and even if it's you know, and I'll say this for myself, like, even if I'm in, don't mean to do it, if it's inadvertent, have I some way just giving Jokic the benefit of the doubt because I'm white or that because he's white. And that's not, that wouldn't be a shot against Jokic. Like that, if someone wants to have a conversation about that, like there's a legitimate conversation to be had and it can happen on all forms. Not a big believer of like, fuck having this on Twitter or we can't have this via discord. Like we absolutely can. It's just, you have to be in the right frame of mind and with, having the discussion with people who are looking for it to be a, an authentic conversation, an authentic like debate that's not going to just turn like toxic and include all this invective and just profanity and then like, low-hanging fruit type of stuff. And again, I go back to what the conversation that Reddick and Perkins were having. Like that doesn't, I get Reddick saying, I don't know if you're watching Yoke. If you're watching Yoke, I don't see how you believe that he's stat padding. Um, if, if, Perkins wants to have the discussion of, okay, well, is Jokic benefiting, you know, from uh, a racial bias? I just don't think points per game or the, the forum to use is like sort of your, not your end all be all, but just to recite facts or whatever he was doing. And these are the conversations though, that are, I don't want to say they're top of mind, but they're being pushed to the fore because as much as I think some of us basketball sickos exist in this bubble where our timeline might be more curated to where we're not listening or watching some of the more, you know, crappy or disingenuous conversations on the regular. There are people, more casual fans, who are less invested in every team and just want to, you know, they have their own team and then, or maybe they're just a casual basketball fan. And like, there you are tuning into these national shows or seeing the clips. And like, that's what they're using as a basis. 
uh, we underestimate the reach there, but then it comes across our timelines anyway, and we're going to comment on it. Everyone's like, well, fuck this. Like, this is stupid. And it's one thing to say, well, like Kendrick Perkins can't build the case this way. It's another thing to say the entire premise of, is there a, a racial bias in the MVP discussion historically, presently? I think it's fair to absolutely have that discussion and to just sort of write it off as no, that's not happening or take it as I think a lot of people who believe it's not even Nuggets fans, just Nuggets fans. I want to make that clear. It's people who just believe Jokic is the MVP speaking in absolutes. And then, yeah, you want to troll perk and get perk, whatever that's, that's fine. But like, just because he's the way he goes about it is, is a way you don't agree with or, or just flat out wrong. Like that doesn't make, the people, other people who might be actually trying to have a discussion. And I don't understand why we can't be more approachable or at least acknowledge that like, Hey, we, we can have this talk where every land. And it doesn't take away from Jokic's MVP itself. Like it's not, this is not people saying Jokic shouldn't win MVP because he's white. No one's actually like, that's not an actual take that's out there. So, or at least that I've seen, maybe it's out there. And that's what I've struggled with in this whole thing. I actually don't think Jokic is overlooked. I like he's about to win his third straight MVP would be my prediction. And even if he finishes the runner up, like you don't have three consecutive top two finishes in the MVP voting by being overlooked. And it'd be the same for Joel Embiid. If he's the runner up again, um, do you think that he should have won in one of the two previous years or even this year? That's fine. That doesn't mean he's overlooked. He'll finish second in three consecutive seasons. You can't be overlooked and finish second in MVP voting in three consecutive seasons. And so I won what this is not me trying to be pious either. This is just more of my genuine curiosity colliding with my inability to reconcile how to feel about this and my hesitance to even comment on these racial matters, because who needs to hear from another just white dude? Like, I, I don't like hearing myself ramble about this, but I also want to talk through it. And I want to hopefully be open-minded when it comes to like, yeah, I need to take a step back and consider this and make sure that I'm not, was I one of the people I don't, I honestly don't remember getting I, I don't think I ever get voter fatigue, or at least when I was younger, I probably said voter fatigue. And I've I've acknowledged that I do think there is voter fatigue out there for some people. But was I one of the people that said, hey, well, like we need to see Giannis do it in the playoffs. And now I'm a big believer of, yeah, use that as the tiebreak, but this is supposed to be a regular season award. And I do view it through that lens. And so how is my thinking of the award evolved? And if you're a voter, if it has evolved, does that somehow I don't want to use the word hurt, but has that changed the results? And would you have voted differently in years past? And I, I think that that's a, um, like a huge, like th that's a, an important way to look at things is to be open-minded and inquisitive of, of yourself. And that's not me just trying to come off my mind. I need to do a better job of it. I've, I've definitely dunked on people who've thought that Jokic doesn't deserve to win MVP. And I will, I will write and I will speak firmly Probably not confidently because I definitely lack that, but I will speak firmly about my opinion that he deserves to win MVP because I think that he does, but I've gotten better. I will say in recent years of being more open to, okay, well, like there can be alternatives and real cases for them. Let's hear it. Let's be open to it. Um, and that's just, I don't, I don't really think that's a landing spot for all this stuff. That's just sort of what's ruminating in my mind. I don't foresee myself, maybe the, um, the matchup this month between Jokic and Embiid. And when you saw Embiid get the best of Jokic last time already, does that sway my thinking? I'm not going to change the way that I'm viewing the MVP race right now, because I do think that I'm at least looking at it more comprehensively than others. And there could just be a problem where, and this isn't necessarily, uh, I, I guess it could be, there could be a racial bias here, but if there are people who have votes who have not watched enough of Nikola Jokic, and they're just kind of using the catch all metrics to, to guide them, and the fact that he's being favored in so many of them, 
then yes, that's going to contribute to skewed voting. And so I do think this is probably my way too long winded way so much for a short podcast, right guys, of saying that there's probably more of an issue with the way that voting is. And I don't know if it needs to be more exclusive. I'm definitely not in favor of getting rid of it altogether. What else would we fucking talk about throughout the year? The games being played? Who wants to talk about that? Come on. But I still wouldn't be in favor of getting rid of the award altogether. Uh, I do think there probably needs to be a change in if you don't want to you know, have concrete criteria. We're not just we're talking about a games played or minutes played threshold, but what does MVP mean? Um, and we're going to call it the best player on the best team award or the best on off swing award. If you want it to ha- be this interpretive process, um, I think that you need to really be more particular with who is getting votes. And I'm not saying you need to um, nix all these uh, single like, single team beat writers or like media members. But like, I think there's a way to make it more of an exclusive click and certainly more diverse. If you're not going to make it more exclusive, like you need to open it up at that point. And I'm not even just going to say, yeah, there needs to be more people of color and people from the LGBTQIA plus community who are covering the NBA and, and like all of that, but also independent creators who like, quite frankly, do a much better job of interpreting and breaking and, some of whom, many of whom do a much better job of synthesizing and breaking down uh, the game than a lot of the people you're seeing in national outlets. A lot of people, certainly better than myself, of course, anyone who listens to this podcast knows, or people who are covering teams on a day-to-day basis and actually have their boots on the ground. You want to tell me that if you, like, if we're talking, I won't throw names out because I don't want to leave anybody out there, but like, if you're looking nationally, like there are so many good people who aren't, um, at all these games, but they're, you know, they're not Zach Lowe. We know he's really good. And I see people think that I'm reading a thread where I think some people are saying that he's kind of skewed more towards a hack. It's okay to be disappointed in what you think that he said or how his podcast might be going. I still very much enjoy it to think that Zach Lowe is like materially part of the problem right now boggles my mind, but absolutely someone like Nikias Duncan could have an MVP vote. And I know that he has access to certain games and that podcast he does with Steve Jones. Is fantastic. Steve Jones could have an MVP vote. You don't think that, these guys, are, like, they're not any less equipped to make an MVP pick than some of these people who are affiliated with teams. Even if you want to talk about not affiliated but covering one team, you don't think Caitlin Cooper could do a great job of, like, picking the uh, – wearing the Caitlin Cooper shirt, by the way. If anyone can see on YouTube, I'll bring the camera down so you can't see it on screen. Basketball, she wrote. Subscribe to it. Represent. She's fantastic. Um, off topic, but, like, she could absolutely have an MVP vote. And there, there are so many people where it's non-traditional media members – so why not open it up that way or again make it include like make it more exclusive while also making it um, more diverse if the the vast majority of the people voting on the award are just white males um, that would be a way to address this and I don't think anything's ever going to solve it completely but I think we all myself included because I feel like this is coming off as a lecture right now uh, need to be more open to having these discussions and most critically listening and listening to them and reading about them and not constantly conveying your own opinion. Like don't get on a podcast called hardwood knocks and just go on the 20 minute rant about this. Uh, how's that for taking my own advice? I'm going to move on there. Hopefully everyone at least, or most of you somewhat appreciated those thoughts, but our next question a little bit more uh, on the lighter side comes from Alexa res 17. If the Clippers spiral out of control, which is it's worrying me because this implies that they have not already, uh, Alexa. But anyway, if the Clippers spiral out of control and the front office decides to blow it up, 
who do you decide between Kawhi and PG-13? And who do you decide to trade, excuse me, between Kawhi and PG-13? And what do you target in return? I want to preface this with, let's also get to, we had a question from um, longtime listener. He's always DMing me and I missed it last week. Leland Gaunt, who essentially asks, um, are the Clippers, their lack of success going back to the Lob City era um, where there was injuries that they dealt with, but they also had all these blown playoff leads to now where they've dealt with other injuries, but then they also go ahead and sign Rush. He, uh, they're basically asking, are the Clippers 50% curse and 50% self-saboteur? So I'll answer this part of the question first. I think Leland had it uh, absolutely positively, right? Uh, it's 50-50 down the line. I mean, maybe it skews one way or the, you know, you look at some of the, like the, um, the playoff happenings, right? Certainly the Kawhi stuff of over the past few years, but you also kind of knew the risk when you were signing him. So 50, 50 seems like a fair split. I don't think that their most successful, you know, years basically since like the 2010s on has, are they, are they predominantly cursed? I guess they are because they've never gotten over that hump despite having all this talent, but they've also like, they blew three one leads under doc rivers. And then it's like, they have blown playoff leads. Um, you know, in, in the bubble and, but you're also dealing with injuries at the same time. So it gets like really iffy. I will say this season might be more self-sabotage than anything. They've dealt with injuries, but how is, you know, Eric Gordon, Marcus Morris, Russell Westbrook are all logging noticeably more minutes when healthy than Terrence Mann per game right now. And you have Eric Gordon, Russell Westbrook playing more crunch time minutes than Terrence Mann. That doesn't make sense in any sort of universe uh, with, you know, all due respect uh, and all the do apologies to Paul George because it seems like he might feel differently. So I'm with you on that, Lena. And to Alexa's question, if you have to trade one, my God, this is a tough question because I don't think they're going to do it. I think what you would do, but I'm going to answer your question. Don't worry, Alexa. Uh, I think what you actually do, because you can trade two first-round picks this summer since you didn't trade one at the, the deadline. It was a swap. They gave. So you can trade a 2028 and 2030 pick, and I think you still have swaps in 27 and uh, 29. So you could go two swaps, two picks and just attach money. You also do have Terrence Mann who will be making more money at that point. Still going to be a bargain of an extension, two years, $22 million. Uh, but you also have Robert Cummington will be expiring. Uh, Norman Powell won't be expiring, but like Eric Gordon, probably not guaranteed at that point. So you, you'll, you'll get that off the books unless you win the title. Uh, Marcus Morris will be expiring. Uh, so between him, Covington, two large expiring contracts, but two at $11.7 million. Um, Avita Zubac is an actual asset, I would argue. So you have these, and like I said, Terrence Mann's $10.6 million. You have like really good salary matching material, plus the ability to offer two firsts and two, two swaps. I would bet that they try and go in on getting somebody um, like a big name with that, a name that would shock you. And I think it would be like probably someone who is you know going to play from the, the point of attack um, at a guard spot, or maybe they, they could look at going the, the big man route here where it's like, it, I don't think that would anything they have would get you a Carl Anthony Towns. But like, if you think you can get an upgrade over, over Zubots, I think it would have to be sort of a perfect storm of circumstances there. I don't think it would be, Hey, let's get although Mikhail Bridges will be interesting with Kawhi and PG. Holy fuck. But I don't think it would be like, Hey, let's just go after OG Ananobi because he's available. I don't think it would be a Zach Levine or Bradley Beal type. I think they would skew more towards the floor general aspect. Now, if you're blowing it up um, and you're only trading one, if this is back to Alexa's question. I guess you're deciding to like kind of not rebuild since you're keeping one of them would be the impetus. Uh, they both have the same amount of time left on their deals. They're both making the, the same amount of money. They're 45.6 next year with $48.8 million player options ahead of 2024 free agency. 
that does make their value complicated because which teams are going to sign them? One, are you comfortable with paying them that money as they get into their mid and late 30s? Do you think Kawhi is going to be healthy enough specifically? Paul George has, of course, dealt with a, um, some health issues himself. And then, but also the other side of that is, well, do, you, do we think that they're both going to stay? And I think, I, I think that you trade Paul George in that instance. I think that he would command maybe more interest because he's more plug and play on offense. He's not the better defender than Kawhi, but you can trust his health more. Um, and I think you can maybe get a better sense of what he's thinking and whether he would stay or not. And it feels like he might be more open to certain destinations than a Kawhi would. Uh, based off how Kawhi has played since about December, maybe a little bit before that, I, in theory, you could get more than him in a vacuum. But I think what Paul George does, even though it's at a slightly smaller scale, you could get more for him when they have the same amount of time on their contracts. And I haven't even looked at the difference in ages for them. I think they might be around the, the same age too. Maybe Paul George is a little bit younger. He is 32 and Kawhi is, he's also 32. Is he not? So I guess we're about identical. He's 31. He's actually younger. He turned 32 in June. So identical ages. I still think it's Paul George. Now, what are you targeting with that? I think it would be someone at that point, especially if you're getting rid of one of your two best advantage creators. It's, well, what can we get um, in terms of you know, a, a point of attack acquisition? You could try and change it up. Be like, well, can we swap Paul George for a big? We don't really see these wing for big trades. But like, what is the big that you're moving as part of a Paul George package? Would you do Paul George for Carl Anthony Towns straight up? That would be this summer. That would be fascinating. Uh, but like, what are you really gaining there aside from, I mean, the Timberwolves have to send out other money, by the way. It's like, like, so like, what are you, you know, Kyle Anderson, Carly Towns for Paul George, is that even something that they're interested in? Uh, I mean, maybe it could be Paul George, Anthony Edwards, Rudy Gobert, and Mike Conley. That's actually pretty heck of a core. But like, are you doing that deal? I, I honestly, I, I don't know. I would guess no, because why wouldn't you want George the better defender and he's just the better self-creator? Um, so like, what is the big man that you would be, like, which is the challenge here that, oh, we'll flip Paul George. So maybe Pascal Siakam? Like if that was something Toronto want to look at, but why would Toronto do that? If you're trading Siakam, you're probably rebuilding. And that's what gets really tough too, is the teams that are giving up stars, why would they necessarily want Paul George? And so you kind of need to find sort of this like team that's really looking to pivot by trading one of their bigger name players, but not looking to rebuild. So in the same situation that you're in, um, would that be in Atlanta with Trey Young? Or is it like, does, like, do you look at Toronto and say, well, we'll give you poor Paul George and some sort of, there'll be other salaries. It'll be a mega deal for OG Ananobi and Fred Van Fleet, like something along those lines. That's if you're trading more than much, that's what I'm targeting because if you're blowing it up to me, you would be trading both. And if you could only trade one, uh, my, my pick would be Paul George mostly because I think that he would get you more value at this point. Is that, is that outrageous to say, uh, by the way, um, that might be, that might be a whole nother discussion. Um, NHL chicken asks, who are your top candidates for six man of the year? I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this, probably almost as much as any uh, award that and defensive player of the year have really thrown me for a whirl this year. And I haven't given as much thought to most improved player, but I am diverged so far from the betting consensus on that with Larry Markin, where I think it's Shea Gilders Alexander. Um, but I digress. Who are my top candidates for sixth man of the year? Uh, so I'll go through the list of names that I'm really looking at and then give you my eventual pick. I think that Bobby Portis definitely needs to be mentioned here. I'm, I'm not sure with 
all the time he missed due to injury, if that's going to cost him. Malik Monk, low-key spectacular, super efficient inside the arc, really provided some downhill jet fuel for the Kings. He's been a great playmaker, not just next to Sabonis, but when you're looking at the deferential decisions that he is making when he gets going downhill. So I think he needs to be talked about. I'm surprised that, and I guess it's just because, oh, like, fuck it, he plays for the Pistons. What do we care? I'm surprised that Alec Burks hasn't gotten more you know, love for this. This is just someone who shot the ball well from three, been a pretty good creator from them. His efficiency has dipped um, in, in 2023 some, but I thought that he was a name that I had circled. I'm just surprised he hasn't been, I guess we like it. I, it does seem like voters like it when the team is slightly relevant, which the Pistons are not. Speaking of slightly relevant, uh, Alex Caruso in Chicago, I don't know if he's going to wind up starting too many games. The criteria, I believe, which by the way is sort of wild, um, but the criteria is you need to start in fewer than 50, 50% of your team's games. Alex Caruso, as I record this, has started in 24 of the Bulls' 55 games. And so my guess is, since he's been in the starting lineup, you know that switch was made recently, my guess is he's going to be ineligible. And so I'm actually not going to include him. I'll give, you, I'll give everyone my final three. Uh, I, I'm like not, as of right now, yeah, he'd be there because he qualifies. But it's also, you kind of look at it and it's like, oh, um, how is that even... Like, like, shouldn't it be like 30% or something like even a higher number, like in the spirit of coming off the bench, um, digressing there. Malcolm Brogdon still deserves to be mentioned. He's have some up and downs, but like this is someone who's shooting 46.1% on threes for the season. I don't know how to reconcile how, you know, someone who's not closing games because like he's really the sixth best player or the sixth most likely player to close games for it might even be the seventh best because of what Derek white has been doing this year that's something you do have to consider benedict matherin's of course in there but his efficiency is cratered especially from deep um probably just hitting that rookie wall still people like microwave scoring there which is also why norman powell way more efficient i think you could uh look at him i do wonder i don't think that um i'm i'm curious as to i don't maybe i can't if i we focus so much on as i started this we focus so much on volume scoring when it comes to six man of the year and there definitely, I believe, needs to be deviations from it. So this is probably just a touch too far. But like, you know, has been really good off the bench this year and probably just hasn't played enough. And you'd like to see me more offensive line. Like, Tari Eason, right out of the gate. Like, that is someone that I would absolutely um, consider not going to finish in my top three, though. Um, to, and then, of course, Emmanuel Quickly, who is now the betting favorite. I don't even know when that happened, but uh, um, I, I think it was like recently because the last time I had checked and then I was doing something project. And I saw on Monday that he was all of a sudden the favorite and it wasn't just like, Oh, he's still playing out better than even money. Uh, he's like actually just the favorite. I think it was like a minus one thirty five. Like it was a heavy favorite. And then you could also mention Malik Beasley. He, he has so far started in 20 games this year, 64 and is starting for the Lakers. Does that change? If you get LeBron and D'Angelo Russell back might just be something worth monitoring there. Uh, but you could mention his name there as well. Uh, Larry Nance Jr. has moments this year. Uh, he's shooting the hell out of the ball, uh, around the basket. He's, I believe he's over like 60% on two, something ridiculous around there. Um, yeah, I think that's probably it. I guess Bogdan Bogdanovich in Atlanta, I don't know if he's going to wind up having played enough games. I should have double checked that there, but he's been like, and when he gets going from three, uh, he's, he's just like sort of this, he's just a freaking a flamethrower and he does so much for Atlanta's offense, but he is at 
I mean, he's been in 40 games this year. So he might be, man, do I add him to my top three? Probably hasn't played enough relative to some of these other guys. If you're looking for the just the pure minutes leaders off the bench this year, this is when they've come off in games they come off the bench. Benedict Matherin it leads the pack with almost 1,700. Malcolm Brogdon and Russell Westbrook, who's not, he's not in my top three. Uh, he's starting now too, but they're over 1,400 minutes. Uh, Manuel quickly. Uh, almost 1,400 of his 1,800 plus minutes have come off the bench. He is four. Malik Monk is fifth with almost 1,400 minutes himself. Um, so let's my top three, and we'll go in reverse order. I'm going to go with Malik Monk at three here. I've been as high as I can be on uh, a season for him. You'd like to see him hit more of his threes, but like he has been, this has been the best passing season of his career. Uh, he is shooting the hell out of the ball inside two point range. He's been hyper efficient on drives. For the most part, so I think I'm going. Ah, does it need to be Norm Powell? I might go Norm. I'm going to go Norm Powell, Malik Monk, just tied for third because that's what I'm doing. And then Malcolm Brogdon is two for me. I don't think he's, he's become like sort of a meme as the sixth man of the year candidate. I think that maybe I'm just too plugged into Nick's Twitter. My actual pick is going to be Emmanuel quickly. He is having one hell of a season. If you look, he is sixth in total points scored off the bench this year. He ranks also in the top 10 of total made threes off the bench. He's in the top eight of total assists off the bench. And if you're looking, if you care about this plus minus for bench players, which by the way, so first Emmanuel quickly ranks second in plus minus among reserves. Do you know who's first? I'm not talking to no one right now. Isaiah Joe of OKC has the highest um, bench plus minus when he's coming off the bench. His plus minus is the highest. That's again, a, really a team stat, but that's still sort of fucking crazy to consider uh others of note uh alex caruso is sixth and so like he's still i would put him on my ballot i want to make that clear and i'm trying to get away from just the volume scores i just want to make that clear i'm trying to value two-way impact more that kind of started the season ever since the season that i picked joe ingles i can't remember what year that was, it was like three years ago whatever at this point um, but he would absolutely make my top three he might even win but my actual winner is emmanuel quickly i, I think i already said that um, shooting th- almost 37% from three on the year. As I mentioned, I think in a previous segment of this podcast, since January 1st, he's at basically 16 points um, around three assists per game. He is shooting 56.8% of his floaters. He is shooting over 40% from three during that stretch. He's been huge for the Knicks. He's been closing games for the Knicks. Uh, his defensive role too, I think really matters. He's a point of attack defender. He will really fight to get over screens um, and like that energy that he is going to bring and the ability to defend well at the point of attack, it really does allow you to do different things between having him, um, Mitch and Josh Hart. You don't need to be super big. And I think it also kind of helps that if you look at like, this is just someone you look at his size. And so he's 15 in rebounds off the bench this year too. Like that's not, that's not nothing. That's a lot of that is to do with, okay. Uh, Emmanuel quickly is playing almost 1800 minutes or excuse me, almost 1400 minutes off the bench this season. But we're also talking about uh, someone who as a guard, like who gets classified as a point guard, even though he's not a point guard, 13% defensive rebounding rate at the height of six, three. I think that's really just, just good enough. And he's just really ubiquitous on plays, even when he's um, not necessarily going to be involved, the steal rate hovering above 1.5 is important, but he's just so active. I think the fight that he shows, um, you can't really screen him, even though he is more slider. And so he's going to make that difficult on you. And he can take on the other team's best player if it's in the backcourt. And look, at 6'3", probably sub 200 pounds at this point, I don't think he can defend up much, but we've seen it. And so like he's been able to hold his own in a lot of those instances. He's been statistically 
I don't really like placing stock in this, uh, so I don't even know why I'm citing it, but statistically he's been one of the better ISO defenders in the league too. So he's my pick. I do think there's still time for someone else to come in and, and win this. Uh, I wouldn't rule out Malcolm Brogdon just yet. And like, if the bulls just decide like, Hey, we're going nowhere. Let's try and juice up Alex Caruso's odds by making him eligible to win six minutes of the year. Maybe it gets to him. I do think if it's not going to be quickly who wins, I think it'll be Powell or Brogdon. People will be drawn towards the efficiency and volume scoring from both of those guys more so for Powell, just having the higher points per game. But I think that's where we, we end up here. And let's make this the last question from Hal. Uh, it comes from Halal Murray. They asked me, what What are your predicted one to 10 seeds on both conferences? So let's go through the East first. Uh, we'll go with Milwaukee at one, Boston at two, Philadelphia in the three seed, the Knicks in the four seed. Yes, they're going to win more than 50 games. Book it. The Cavs in the five seed, the Nets in the six seed. I think they have a big enough cushion to hold off the heat. Who will I have at seven? I will have the... Raptors at eight, the Hawks at nine, and the Wizards at 10. All the apologies to Orlando and Indiana fans. Let's go to the West, which was exponentially harder. Denver at one, they have that zone up. Actually, a Phoenix at two. That's really just, it shouldn't sound all that absurd. They're only a couple losses behind the Kings right now who are in second. I will have the Kings at three. Memphis at four, just because they have such a hold on it, even though I don't trust them. Golden State at five, that is knowing how poorly they play on the road, definitely a risk. And the Clippers at six, also not feeling great about that. The Timberwolves at seven, the Mavs at eight, the Lakers at nine. Yes, with or without LeBron James, Lakers, tune in them. They've been playing a lot better lately. Shout out to Anthony Davis. Then the Thunder at 10, they just won't say die. I don't trust the Blazers. The Jazz aren't trying to win. And the, the Pelicans without Zion Williamson are just absolutely sad. Um, that will do it. I hope you appreciated this mailbag. If you've made it to the end and you haven't subscribed yet, please do so right now. And if you've done that, recommend us, shout us out on Twitter, tell people about us on YouTube, just get them to subscribe. And also join our Discord link for that in the podcast in the description as well. Until next time, and as always, leave a shout out to one, the only, Frank Neal and offer my sincere apologies to Jared Allen.